0: This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business. And we have a really important show this week. We've engaged Vanessa McMullen of North Shore Child Guidance. Uh, right here in Long Island, and we're going to talk about talking to children, especially younger children, about tragic types of events. They see all the time in the news. They hear from siblings and classmates all kinds of very tough news. You know, when we had nine eleven, the the first 9-11, the second 9-11, things that happened in schools, things that happened in different places, the Boston Marathon, uh, so, Vanessa, thank you for, 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 you know, for, for, for being with us, because it, we, we really need someone who can help us. And I know this is an important resource to a lot of people out there. T- tell me a little bit about yourself first.
1: Um, well, I work, as you said, for North Shore Child and Family Guidance Center, and we are a not-for-profit children's mental health agency on Long Island. We have been around for over 60 years, and we work with families uh, ranging from children birth all the way up to 24 on pretty much anything that you can imagine that affects young children. Uh, we do mental health. We do parenting work. We do substance abuse. Um, we do academic and learning issues. Um, we do respite and trying to help kids engage in other things uh, outside in the community, like a wilderness program. We have organic gardens really trying to find creative ways to work with children and families on very stressful issues. Uh, So I work at the Marks Family Right from the Start Center, which is our early childhood program based in Manhasset, and uh, that ranges um, from, again, birth up to age about 10, Um, and I. I'm the supervisor here, and I also coordinate the Diane Goldberg Maternal Depression Program that works with new moms who are experiencing perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, as well as um, working with young children. So it's a great agency, wonderful program, and I've been uh, here for over 10 years. So um, you know, we do wonderful work here.
0: Now, what is your background? Is it psychology? I am a work? licensed
1: clinical social worker.
0: Okay.
1: So... Um, yeah, and I'm a supervisor here.
0: Wow, you must deal with some very tough circumstances.
1: Yes, yes, we do. Um, you know, we deal with you know children who are experiencing uh, you know typical transitional issues like maybe the stress of a divorce or a parent separation, as well as depression or anxiety. We have some kids who have developmental delays. We have kids with ADHD and oppositional behaviors. Kids who are struggling in school uh, or struggling at home socially. Um, you know, we have kids with more significant mental health issues. Maybe some kids who are feeling um, suicidal. Um, so we really, um, you know, even young children need uh, need help. So I think that that's something that's um, not always recognized that you can intervene at a young age and help these kids.
0: I have to ask sort of a, a tough question. Sure. Is it harder to be a child today than it's ever been? I think so. Because I think so, but, you know, because uh, it just seems that the world is flooded with technology and mm-hmm. um, more responsibility at, at earlier in ages. I, I, you know, I see prior generations of people, they they played outside more. They had less homework. They had less responsibilities. Right. And now I see younger children are you know reading at really early ages. They have more responsibilities. They go to school much earlier mm-hmm. um, than anyone I know in many prior generations of the past.
1: There's a lot more pressure starting at a young age, and that your question is actually one that I've posed to parents at different workshops. And the consensus is that yeah, it's it's harder to be a kid now. You know, I, sometimes they're talking about, um, like, application process for school for a three-year-old um, where there's a different um, emphasis on curriculum and learning where you're finding sometimes these kids don't necessarily develop the basic social-emotional health skills that they need in order to be good students when they get a little bit older. Those things are kind of getting pushed aside so that kids are more ready to, or, you know, more ready to take on reading and writing and math where... You know, uh, maturity-wise, they're not there yet. So it's kind of misguided in a lot of ways.
0: Is it also more problematic that we have the types of entertainment that we have? It's probably a little bit more violent, a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more suggestive than it's ever been and at younger ages.
1: Yes. Um, You know, kids are being exposed to a lot of things um, that they can't make sense of in a lot of ways, Um, you know, and one of the struggles I think that a lot of parents are um, dealing with that I speak to is, you know, when you're trying to grapple with giving your kids access to technology, whether it's their own cell phone or, um, you know, using different apps or uh, websites on the internet, it's got this social component, so they don't want their children to be left out, but meanwhile, they're, they're exposing their kids to things that they don't know what to do with um they can't necessarily distinguish what's real what's fantasy or you know that things you see on the screen or things you see in a video game you can't do in real life um they're not their brains aren't ready to to make those um you know implications yet so you know it's setting them up for problems
0: right especially when they see that you know in the prior generations there was more things like you know Bugs Bunny, which was kind of violent, Mm -hmm. Tom and Jerry. But it doesn't seem that it was as violent (laughs) as some of the stuff today.
1: No. And, you know, I know there's those um, suggested ratings, but a lot of kids are not, kids and families are really not following those. You know, we have kids that are playing video games that are way above uh, where they're at maturity-wise, that they shouldn't be, you know, things things that they shouldn't be seeing.
0: So how, how do you talk to children about just what we're talking about now, which is to distinguish between cartoons and animated features on television and reality when their sense of reality is so basic?
1: Well, it's a lot of it really starts with making sure you are monitoring what they have access to and really limiting what they have access to in a lot of ways. Um, you know, a lot of families really don't want to think about really what's how to talk to their kids about the negative stuff that's out there because especially with young children, we think they don't know. We think that they're not paying attention. We think that they, um, just because maybe they haven't seen the news directly in your home, means that they don't know what's going on. So we think that by avoiding these things, Kinds of conversations, we're shielding them, and I mean, of course, that's what we want. We want to think of our four-year-old as innocent, and you know, not really teaching them the harsh realities of the world at such a young age. But as the adults, we have this obligation that we we have to find a way to address it in an age-appropriate way. So, step one, really, like I said, goes with with limiting what they're what they have access to. So just because we think they might be playing up with blocks and not paying attention or not listening to the phone call the kids are we know that they are absolutely perceptive they are listening they are looking um, so you might think that they're not watching the news in the background but they're hearing stuff and again they can't really make sense of it and when they're seeing these images of um, traumatic events being played over and over again you know they don't recognize that this happened maybe one time, and it's just a replay. They see it in the morning. They see it in the afternoon. They see it happening over and over again. And that's, you know, overwhelming and scary. And when it's not explained to them about what happened, we know that kids also kind of draw their own conclusions. And most of the time their conclusions are wrong and can be actually worse than what reality is. So it's important for the kids to feel that the adults around them are going to provide them with the right information about what's going on.
0: Well what's interesting is at least from personal observations, I noticed that children can be very literal mm-hmm. but and they take that extrapolation from one event and they're very literal to another event. Yeah. Because that's their frame of reference. Yes. But but like you said, it it's it's not always apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. And how do you explain to them that the reality that they experienced in situation A? Um, you know, if you don't do this this will happen, uh, and then they do some other behavior, and they think, "Oh my God, this is going to happen to me." <laughs> and then now it's that's not going to happen. It's just that's too dramatic. But
1: well, but th- you know, recently with all of the school shootings and things that have unfortunately been happening in, the, happening in the news, that is something from young children really all the way up that kids are scared about. If it happened at one school, what's to say it's not going to happen at mine? So you know they they need to. F- be told that they're safe. They need to be, um, you know, confronted with their feelings and let them know it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be um, sad or, ha- or be confused or be angry about what happened, and this is how we're going to deal with it. This is how we're going to help you. This is how we know that you are safe because, you know, that's school is supposed to be a safe place. So when you hear even one story that really highlights how school can, maybe isn't always a safe place in some areas – you know, it's it's hard to let that
0: go. Well, especially when there are on a micro level, I'm sure to some extent there's some levels of bullying almost everywhere. Yeah. So, and I'm sure that children, whether they see it directly or indirectly or hear about it or whatever, they, bullying must make people feel somewhat unsafe. And then if you throw on top of that all these other safety issues such as unfortunately like a school shooting or some other kind of event inside a school. Um, I have a feeling that the, you know, you could say to children, I right, look, that was, you know, an isolated incident, but bullying is not necessarily isolated to quote other places. Right. You know, I mean that, that happens, I guess, every schoolyard everywhere and in homes, you know, between siblings and, all, you know, cousins and, you know, whatever, you know. So how, how do you explain that when, when there is something that they definitely see, and then you try to say something like, well, see, the bullying is real and we have to deal with it, but the, the, the much more problematic things like, say, a, a, a mass shooting or some kind of mass tragedy is somehow different when to them they're scared of both.
1: Well, for young children, when you're trying to address these, you know, bigger global incidents, we, we try not to give too many specifics because, again, that kind of information can possibly trigger more anxiety or make them more afraid. Um, so we try not to link it to something that they might experience like bullying we don't want to say that this is a bully who then turned around and did something very bad or very dangerous we would say you know somebody came um or you know we would try to make it so that it was um less less personal okay um so that they wouldn't then have that internal fear of relating it to something that they you know could specifically um can relate to right you know in their own life um But one of the ways that we work with children around bullies is letting them know that uh, it's okay to talk to an adult. And you should be, you know, you should be going home and you should be telling your parents what happens at school and you should be telling, and we try to work on the difference between what's being mean and what's actually being a bully because you have some kids that, you know, tell for everything and that's very age appropriate with young ones. But, um, you know, there are things that are more serious and things that need an adult attention or things that persist um, you know, we want to give kids the coping skills to say, hey, you know, don't don't say that to me, or, um, you know, if you say that to me again, I'm going to tell the teacher, um, and really kind of encouraging kids to be a little bit empowered, because empowerment, I feel like, is something that's um, just such a good life skill to have, um, but, you know, that the adults are the ones that really need to intervene in a lot of these ways, so that the, and and. Schools are actually taking bullying very seriously now. There's all of these new initiatives to um, try to intervene with bullying and and try to make uh, these schools, you know, kind of bully-free zones and and looking after what's going on. Um, But that it's the adult's responsibility. You know, these kids are not in charge of themselves. It's up to the adults to really look and say, this is not going to happen in my classroom. This is not going to happen in my gym. This is not going to happen on my property.
0: So how do you give tools to children? How does that work
1: uh, well coping skills is you know something that m- we're not born with it's something that is developed you know developing a sense of resiliency is a really important life skill uh, and it's something that really needs to be modeled for kids so even as we're talking about um, how to talk to kids about diff- you know difficult topics and difficult life stressors um, things being modeled for them is really essential Feelings, even negative feelings, are part of life. It would be wonderful if we could take away sadness and anger and pain, but the harsh reality is they're there uh, and and we have to learn how to deal with them. And as hard as it is to sit and watch your child struggle or to kind of let your kid tough it out and figure out how to cope, if they don't learn how to do it at, you know, three, four, five, six years old, you know, it's harder to learn it when they're older. And I think we all know people that are, you know, we have an example of someone in our mind who never learned how to cope uh, as an adult. So, you know, really letting them know it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad. Those feelings, we deal with them and they and they pass. So we do, like, a lot of emotional regulation skills about how to help kids uh, manage their feelings, uh, like anxiety reduction, how to do mindfulness, do deep breathing, uh, stress relief. We talk about the connection between, um, you know, physical, in you know, our feelings and our physical health so that sometimes when we're angry, we need to get those feelings out so we can squeeze a stress ball, we can punch a pillow, we can, you know, if we need to yell into a pillow, that's okay. These feelings need to come out of our body somehow because uh, when we hold them in, it doesn't help us feel good. <laughs> um, but also how the adults model these. So, you know, letting parents know you can model what it's like to be angry or to be sad. And that's and then we feel better. We, we use a coping skill and we help move on because these feelings are something that happen, but they're temporary. They don't need to take over. And, you know, that's an important life lesson for them.
0: You know, I know this is a very serious show, and, and I usually try to be light in the shows once in a while, <laughs> especially in serious topics, but it kind of reminds me of a Star Trek episode in the original Star Trek series with William Shatner. <laughs> and, Uh, Captain Kirk was somehow in a transporter accident uh, split into two different personalities. There was the um, sort of the uh, meek uh, Captain Kirk and the aggressive, angry uh, Captain Kirk. And they were trying to figure out what to do. And I think uh, the, the issue for the crew came up, should we get rid of, you know, this bad Kirk? And they went to the meek Kirk to talk to us. He was like the more rational guy. And they said, like, essentially, what what are we going to do with him? And he said, I I need my pain. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, you got to put me back to be a whole person because that's part of my whole person. Yeah. And even though it was a long time ago, and I I remember it from a very long time ago, it just seemed to have been very powerful because um, I I know that in certain, you know, teachings of, you know, in religions and things like that, you can't understand, like, bad things without seeing good things. So sometimes the explanation is how do we... Why is why are there bad things in the world, right. and sort of it's like so you can appreciate that there's good things in beauty and because without a contrast we don't we wouldn't understand the context.
1: Right, makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. All right, this is Richard Solomon. I'm with Vanessa McMullen, and we will be right back. This is a really important uh, uh, topic, and if you want more information, you could always check back here or NorthshoreChildGuidance.org. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Rory Cosgrove, and you're listening to Rich Solomon on WTWP 88.1 FM. Welcome back. Richard Solomon taking care of business with Vanessa McMullen, and, and she's just right here in uh, Long Island at the North Shore Family Guidance. Uh, are you right off of the expressway on the service road, uh, on the right side going eastbound?
1: Uh, well, we ha- our main office is the eastbound service road in Roslyn Heights um, between Roslyn Road and Glen Cove Road. Uh, where I am is an early childhood center we're on the service road going the other way in manhasset by uh, Christopher Morley Park
0: oh sure I know that well so for people out there their website is northshorechildgottens.org and they have a, a, a really robust um, uh, you know plan for every all kinds of things and uh, I, the more I hear the more I feel that you guys do just a great uh, number of things for for uh, the community. So for all of us out there who need this kind of information, thank you. All right. So we're talking about trauma and children and talking to them. Let's go through some very specific things. Okay. How do you explain to very young children what ultimately tragically could happen is the death of someone in a family, you know, a a grandparent and uncle, you know, God forbid a parent, you know, but but these things happen. How do you explain to younger children, um, what that really is, and how to deal with it, especially. You know, I remember going to the funeral of a friend, and he had a very young child. And I know that at the cemetery, they sort of released a balloon, a balloon into heaven. But but it was crushing. It was just mm-hmm. crushing on every level. It was just yeah. you know it was sad for everyone involved. Great human being, uh, great family, tragic loss. Uh, person died way too young. Uh, and it was one of those things, you know. Guy fought really hard, but his medical condition, you know, superseded him. Mm. How, how do you explain that? How do you explain that to children? That you know.
1: Well, it's that has to be one of the hardest conversations um, to have with with a child. And um, you know, like I had said before, one of sometimes an adult's inclination is to just kind of ignore it um, as best they, as much as they can, and kind of maybe just see what the kid brings up or, you know, wait to see how things play out. And, you know, it's a a good, I think one of the reasons is that sometimes parents think that kids are going to ask a question that they're not going to know the answer to. And, you know, especially when you're talking about something like death, that is something that as adults we don't have the answers to in a lot of ways. So it can feel like the right thing to avoid it because you either, you know, don't know what to say or you don't want to give wrong information. But a good place to start is to, kind of start by asking the child where they're at. So what do they already know? What do they think is going on? Um, because, again, depending on the nature of the death, you know, that they've maybe been exposed to this illness for a long time or it was something more sudden, you know, kids have tendency to make up their own things. So, you know, tell me what you think happened to dad or tell me what you think happened to grandpa. Um, can kind of get you understanding a little bit of their mindset and, let you know that either you may need to correct some misconceptions or that they may be thinking about something that wouldn't even have been on your radar. You know, for a lot of times when kids experience death, it prompts some pretty, um, it prompts questions about, you know, well, can he still go to the bathroom or when is he coming home? Like they don't necessarily understand the finality of it. And that happens at different ages, you know, as they get a little bit older. So, you know, you may, you know, this is a, a conversation that a lot of times is when people incorporate their faith into it, you know, they can talk about what they believe, but that's again a hard con- It's an abstract concept for young kids, but it's okay to, to kind of start there and, and do it in very small tolerable doses. And, you know, you want to be clear, in saying, um, you know, you don't, you want to use words, unfortunately, like dead or died. Uh, You don't want to say things like they passed away or they're sleeping because those, you know, kids think those those are not permanent. And in the past, you know, kids have become afraid to go to sleep because people don't wake up. You know, unfortunately, once people die, they don't wake up from sleep. So that's not a concept that kids can wrap their head around. So you want to you know, say that means that they're not coming home. That means, you know, sometimes kids will say, Does that, is he going to be back for my birthday? You know, no, that means that he's, you know, he's not coming back for your birthday. He's not going to be here. And it's it's very harsh news to deliver, but you have to be as concrete as you can about it so that kids understand. And you also need to understand that they're not going to get it after one conversation. It's something that will become a little bit more clear to them as time passes and as they start to realize that this person isn't coming back. So, you know, you want to have it, you want to broach the subject and talk, but then also give them a break. So you want to follow their lead. If they don't want to talk about it anymore, the conversation should be over. If they want to go and play and, you know, forget about it, that's okay. There's really no wrong way to cope with this because it's something that they don't understand yet and it's something that's so overwhelming You know, they're just trying to bring back a sense of normalcy as much as they
0: can. So the follow-up question, and this is also in the field of tough, at what age do you bring children to a cemetery or to a chapel?
1: This is something a lot of parents ask. Um, Yeah, they want to know about the wake or the funeral. And the, the hard part is that there is no exact answer. We really uh, try to handle it on an individualized basis because you know what your child can handle. I've seen some very young kids be able to go to those services and participate, um, and they've done okay. You know, maybe they've gone and they would stay away from, you know, the area that had the body, but they would be running around with their cousins, and to them it would almost be like a social gathering. Um, But for some kids it's really way too overwhelming and they don't understand it. So uh, it's good to kind of have that conversation. Some kids want the opportunity, you know, when they're a little bit older, they want the opportunity to say goodbye. They want the opportunity to participate in the ritual, Um, whereas, you know, younger kids, if they don't necessarily have the ability to make that decision, it's up to the parents. So, you know, but it can be a hard thing, to, you know, for a young child to be in a room where everyone's crying or everyone's sad or, um, you know, so if you don't think your child's ready, it's probably not a good idea to bring them. But that could range. You, we can. We have some ten-year-olds who aren't ready.
0: I I remember when my grandmother died, and I went to the chapel, and I just I just couldn't. You know, when they said all rise, and they brought the casket in, I just could not get it through my head that my grandmother was inside of that. Mm, and yeah. you know, it, it was just. It was just, and I. I I was shielded from having to go to the cemetery, okay. Which was probably a good thing at that point, right? um, Because of my age at the time. But but for me, I I was just, you know, I can't believe my grandmother is in there, and that's it, and we're done. I mean, like, I don't know, you know, what what the exact words were, but in substance, that's what my Mm -hmm. much younger brain was thinking, right? Um, And I was incredibly sad, and I had tremendous. Difficulty trying to just accept that this was a one-way deal. Right. You know, and I don't know that that's, there's much you can do for that, you know, or talk no. to people.
1: I mean, the other, you know, another you know, tip in all of this is when, especially when there's a death, the adults are struggling in their own way too. So as hard as it is you do when you're uh, work helping your child work through this kind of issue – you try to you need to try to have a sense of control. Uh you need, you know, it's you can model that it's okay to be sad, you can model that you know you don't have all the answers, but there has to be, you know, it's it's terrifying for young children to see their the adults in their life that they care about and that generally provide safety and security for them to be out of control. Whether that's, you know, angry or so sad that they, you know, can't stop crying, that's that in some instances can be scarier than the actual death because if mom is so scared or if mom is so sad, then this this is so bad. So, you know, again, when you're struggling yourself, it's almost impossible to pull it together, but trying to find a way to do that uh, when you are around the children or when you're around that conversation, you know, to say that this is so sad, but we're going to be okay. And as the adults, you know, that it takes a while You might not even believe that, or it's going to take some time, but that's the message that the kids need to get, that they're going to recover from this, that the family is going to recover from this, and that, you know, even in those moments, it's okay to be happy at times. You know, that's something that kids struggle with sometimes, is if everybody said, well, I can't be happy, I can't enjoy anything. And, you know, they still need to be a kid. They still need to laugh. And, um, you know, that that's that's an okay thing for them to experience.
0: So... Moving on while we're in this topic of sort of tough stuff, mm-hmm. how do you deal with sort of upheaval? And upheaval can consist of changing schools, um, I guess uh, second marriages, divorces, uh, anything that's very transitory or you know, a transition to something completely different from the status quo. I, I assume that all of those events, even though they're different, have kind of the same... Impact.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How do you deal with like upheaval to, to children when their their world has somehow been turned upside down? It's like, okay, we're moving, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> right? Hey, we're you know, we the we're 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 moving to California, you know. Yeah. Uh and it's sort of like uh, you know, the child has friends family and there's an upheaval or Mm -hmm. uh, we have a new job and we need to move or I'm sure military children have a very tough time um, uh, because they move around a lot. Right. Uh, How do you deal uh, with that in terms of supporting children and their fears and their stability concerns and uh, the loss of friends and familiarity?
1: Well, Part of it is, again, working with the parents or the adults around them to try to help them provide a sense of normalcy, a sense of um, consistency, even in these times. And a big part of what, what we encourage parents to do and what we would do in therapeutic setting is uh, validation of feelings, which is, you know it's really hard to not have any control over this. You know, you like where you live, you like your school, and to just be told, well, we're going to move, or, you know, mom and dad are, you know, mom and dad is moving out. You know, it's, you know, kids are allowed to have feelings about that. They're allowed to have reactions. Um, you know, we want to help them keep those reactions in a safe, controlled way, but we can say, you can be mad. You can say, this stinks, or I hate this, or I um, really just encouraging kids to kind of share those feelings. Then with the second piece of it saying, you can have those feelings, but this is still happening. So this is how we're going to help you. Um, you know, we're going to, you know, if it's a move or something, it would be making a memory box or, um, you know, for some kids with uh, there's like a change in their family dynamic and someone's moving, it's, all right, well, let's make a very clear schedule of when you're going to see, or let's, you know, the next time you're going to see dad, we're going to write it on the calendar, or you can still, we're going to set up this um, social media account so you can keep in touch with your friends. You know, trying to give kids ways to still be connected, to, um, you know, process those feelings and not feel like it's happening so abruptly. We want, we want to encourage those connections as much as we can. Um, and then also encouraging them to use those coping skills that help them manage their feelings. Uh, you know, anything that can help um, control their anger. You know, we do a lot of art projects or, um, like I said, a lot of physical or relaxation techniques, positive visualization, you know, any of those things that can help them control those feelings in the moment because those feelings are normal. Oh, those Feelings are allowed.
0: Uh, the, the problem is what do you do with those feelings? I guess some of it makes great Rock music and popular songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you ever notice, some of the greatest music comes from anger, pain, disappointment, oh, absolutely, tragedy. Um, and, you know, uh, the Eric Clapton. Uh, right now, in, on Showtime, they're they're doing the, sort of the Eric Clapton uh, documentary. It's called Life in Twelve Bars, and he talks about Layla and mm-hmm. what was. And if you listen to the song, it's really a song about sort of. A lot of very complex, deep emotional issues in a relationship, and what's very interesting is if you listen to the song when he first recorded it, you listen to the unplugged version. Many years later, when he's just doing an acoustic guitar, and then you hear him many years later after that, looking back at it, um, the whole thing, and he talks about the creation of the song and what was behind it, and, and it's very, very interesting. But but great feelings make great mm. music. Sadly, yeah. you know. So um, to what extent can school help these kinds of situations? Because the problem is that, in my opinion, this is just opinion, we ask the schools to do too much. They, you know, be with the kids all day, you know, and and, and aside from teach them and nurture them, we ask them to do all kinds of other things, Mm -hmm. including give sort of like emotional support. Um, and that's hard. You know, that's a big burden. How can schools help in some of these upheaval type situations, especially at least when the school's involved where all of a sudden you're a transfer student and you're being transferred in mid semester and you're now the new person in the class or the new person in the grade and maybe the community's well established and you're coming from some other place. Like let's say you're moving from. California to New York or something like that, and mm-hmm. it's very different culturally, different, different climate-wise, every you know everything's different. How does how can a school and how can you all work together to kind of help that upheaval be less frightening?
1: Well, I mean, I think you're it's, there's, there's a lot going on in schools. Um, you know, kids are busy from the minute they walk in those doors to the minute they you know exit, and then they've got homework and all of this other um, stuff to go with it. But you know, schools you know, definitely want to help kids when, in any way that they can because a lot of it, you know, even if it's technically not directly related to the schools, the academics get impacted. So if you have a kid who's stressed because they just moved or they're worried about making friends or they're upset about a home situation, you know, that is going to possibly affect a children's ability to pay attention and be present and learn and follow directions or be a good listener in the classroom. So it definitely is in the best interest of the schools to, you know, want to address any issues that they can and and help kids. So we do usually encourage parents to let schools know what's going on. You know, obviously a school would be aware if a child just moved there, but if there's anything significant that's going on in the child's life, like family-wise, we usually recommend that the parents call like the school social worker or the teacher just to give them a heads up to say, you know, if you see anything, if you notice anything or if, um, you know, you could check in on them. And, you know, a lot of the times the, the schools are really very receptive to that. Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times, you know, the staff in the lunchroom, you know, you want to make sure that kids are connected and, you know, coming into a new school and depending on the age, it can certainly be harder, but making sure that kids are, uh, the existing kids are are Being as welcoming to a new student as possible, uh, making sure that they have someone to sit with or making sure that, you know, just something simple like they're learning who everyone is in their classroom. Like, you know, we can take for granted, like, oh, this is so-and-so, the new student, and, you know, and now we're on to Chapter 5, but, um, you know, sort of facilitating some of these relationships right off the bat and staying in touch with the parents to say, you know, it's you know, it was a tough week, but we seem to be coming out of it. Or, you know what, this has kind of been going on a long time, and, you know, your daughter doesn't seem to be getting acclimated here. Like, what do we think is going on with this? So it's just about keeping that relationship open so that the parents and the staff are keeping an eye on things because there's going to be a typical period
0: of adjustment.
1: You know, that's normal and and okay, but we would want to make sure that the kids are getting settled and, and looking to see if there's a reason why they're not.
0: All right, well, speaking of adjustment, we have to take a quick break here. Uh, we'll be right back, Richard Solomon and Vanessa McMullen. Uh, we'll be right back. Keep it locked in.
1: Hi, this is Anastasia Zotos from Athens, Greece, and we listen to Richard Solomon on our computers, and we love it.
0: All right, so speaking of upheaval, this is Richard Solomon <laughs> taking care of business and uh, very tough stuff. We're talking about helping children cope with very tough issues. And what was interesting, my guest is Vanessa McMullen, and she's saying, Well, sometimes adults have um, hard times either understanding or coping. And it kind of reminds me of a situation on The Simpsons where Homer's walking with God and he's trying to find out all about the world. And he says, Hey, God, what what happens when you die, and God says, well, you know, you'll find out, you know, when that happens. And he goes, no, no, I, I really want to know now. And God God gets a little angry and says, you can't wait six months. <laughs> 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 so anyway, but- so to lighten up uh, the very serious topic. So in, in the realm of upheaval, let's talk about you know siblings and in the introduction of siblings to the family. Say, let's say you're couple of years old a few years old and all of a sudden you're gonna find out that you're gonna have a, a new brother or sister mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're no longer the king or the queen or the prince of the princess right what's the, what is what are the better strategies to sort of introduce that idea and how to help children I, I remember that even though it's all a big concept I remember seeing a particular young child and when that person was introduced to their new sibling, there was a look of almost like loss and despair in their eyes. Like, wow. well, what's going to happen to me now? You know, everybody, and everybody's fawning over this new little creature.
1: Right.
0: Um, how, do, how does that work?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those typical life transition issues, but it certainly can be stressful and it depends on the age, but, a lot of times parents, you know, involving the older child during the pregnancy, you know, mom has a baby coming and, you know, they see the, the physical change in mom and they get excited um, and they're excited for the baby to come and then, you know, after like a day or two they've had enough and they're ready for the baby to go. <laughs> um, so it takes a little adjustment to realize that this baby's here to stay and as much as you kind of lay it out, they're like, oh, well, the baby might cry or the baby's really going to need mommy and daddy. When it's actually in front of them, it's much more of a difficult situation to handle. So, you know, again, it always really kind of comes back to validating feelings in a lot of ways to say, you know, I know it's different or it must be hard that mommy's busy with the baby. You know, sometimes, especially for young kids, putting words to what they're experiencing or what they're feeling can be comforting because they don't really know. A lot of times when kid, they don't necessarily have those um, the ability to make connections after they're struggling, they might just be angry or they might be sad and they don't really know what that is. Um, so you know, just really validating and trying to keep things as normal as possible is always a good thing. Um, but we usually try to encourage parents to – still try to give that older child a little bit of attention as as much as they can. Um, You know, it's obviously easier when the parents have, you know, it's a two-parent family or there's help available to say, all right, grandma's going to take the baby and me and you, we're going to go for a walk or we're going to have lunch together. Something that still gives that child attention because what do we know about children is they figure out ways to get attention and If it's not positive, it's going to be negative. So that's why you hear a lot of times typically children are regressing. Uh, They might regress with their eating or their toileting or their sleeping, or they might try to crawl into the bassinet because they see this baby getting all of this attention and, you know, hey, why, why won't that work for me? So you do want to give kids, you know, as much individual attention. You want to make it positive. You want to encourage them, you know, that you're a big boy or you're a big girl, you want to enlist them in helping wherever possible, you know, can you bring mommy the bottle or can you, um, you know, go throw this diaper in the garbage can. Cause you know, we know that kids like to feel like they're helping. Um, and again, just also understanding that there might be some bumps and it'll, it'll smooth itself out. But, uh, you know, it's something that it's really kind of turning their whole world upside down. So it's yeah, okay fun. that they have some feelings about it and some maybe, and even some behaviors.
0: Well, what's funny is I remember um, <laughs> it was really funny. Uh, a particular incident where there was some people I knew, and apparently there was a new child that was brought into the family, and there was already pre-existing siblings, and one of the children took like um, like an object and kind of <laughs> rubbed it, you know, in a soiled area, and, and- then went, "Give baby, give baby."
1: <laughs> oh. all right. Well, there
0: you go. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, this child is now like 30, but I, <laughs> I still remember it to this day. And, you know, I guess, how do you, how do you quench the jealousy or the fear that I'm um, not important? And so they don't do the things like that, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, that's something that's going to take some time to evolve. Um, you know, it's because the kid, the older child is going to need to see how the new family, you know, settles that, you know, mommy and daddy can love both of you um, or, you know, you're still important in this family or you're still the big helper. Um, that's not something that's going to happen immediately. So you kind of just got to wait it out a little bit. And like I said, encourage that positive attention, trying to keep their routine normal. So if they go to school, you know, continue to encourage them to go to a school program so that their their day and their expectation generally remains consistent because that's something that helps kids with any transition is consistency, knowing what to expect. And as much as a baby turns things upside down, um, you know, we want the other parts of their uh, life to remain stable.
0: All right. So in, this this show has just really went fast and uh, I definitely want you to come back, but we still have a few more minutes. So I want to touch upon one last topic. Sure. Marijuana seems to be legalized in a lot of places and is becoming legal in more and more places. How, how do how do parents talk to children about drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, all vaping, all those things?
1: Well, you know,
0: and, and it's
1: something that you don't really want to it's it's good to have open lines of communication. So, you know, that's something where and especially as we talk about young kids and even just addressing hard topics it's good to be an approachable parent in a lot of ways and that doesn't start when you know we typically think that maybe drug or substance use starts maybe like an adolescence you know you want to kind of lay the foundation as early as possible to set boundaries and limits and talk about things and expectations younger to set you know especially again we touched briefly on technology and media and stuff and being flooded with a lot of information Um, and it's coming from all different sources. It's very different than it used to be because now, you know, you're not just getting information from a trusted, you're getting information from someone's blog or someone's, you know, feelings from their living room. So, you know, kids, there's a lot of dangerous information that's being presented to kids. So again, part of it, number one, is really being very aware of what your children are exposed to. Um, particularly through social media and technology, and anytime you see something or anytime there is a, a noteworthy story or incident, you know it's always a good thing to use as a jumping off point. So, you know, in terms of substance use, to say, you know, well, I I saw this was posted on your Facebook page or this was posted on a YouTube channel. Like, have you seen it? What do you think about it? Um, and sometimes, again, asking kids what they think is a good place to start, but making sure that parents really set a lot of, um, you know, have a lot of boundaries and a lot of very clear expectations for what they want for their children, but not, but in a way that the conversation is going back and forth, that it's not you can't do this. You know, we, it, it needs to be a dialogue so that kids know if they're struggling with something or if there's something that comes up, they can come to the parent and ask them.
0: So how do we deal with this situation? Because I've read about this in an article. It's fascinating. And the question was, uh, let's say parents may have had a, either experimental use of drugs or an addiction that they've sort of overcome. How do they talk about that with children? Like if a child says, well, did you ever do this? or Did you ever do that? Or, you know, did you ever try this? Like, what do you say? Is full disclosure necessary?
1: Um, full disclosure is, you know, you want to censor information. You don't want to lie. Um, you know, a good a good rule of thumb is, you know, always trying to pose it back to the children. You know, if you're, if you're trying to at least take a moment to say, like, you know what, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Um, so, or you can say, you know, well, why are you asking me? You know, do you think that, you know, is it something that you just want to know or do you think that my experience can help you? Like sometimes even you need to buy a minute because, you know, kids can ask you things that totally trip you up, whether it's about substance abuse or something else. And you don't want to ramble. You want to, you know, gather your thoughts and say, um, you know, all right, well, why, why do you want to know? Or, you know, what do you think? And, again, kind of ask them where they're at. You can give very limited information. You can say, you know, there were there were things that I tried and I, you know, I, I regret it or it didn't work out well or, you know, I, I'm really not comfortable sharing that with you. But you know, this is a, adolescence is a funny phase because, you know, kids want they're struggling with being independent, but they're also still very needy in a lot of ways.
0: It's interesting because I kind of feel like that's sort of at least contemporary. You see that more where. It's like I want to be independent, but I don't know how. And it's harder to be independent these days because you know I remember hearing stories of you know friends and colleagues and you know, they left home when they were sixteen or seventeen and went to work and did this and that. I don't know anybody who could do that now, <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know. Like I, I literally have a, a friend and uh, you know she tells the story how like you know she was just sixteen, she moved out of the house, got a job, and that was that, and you know no big deal. And I'm thinking to myself how could anybody do that now? Because most of the jobs that you would get at the age of 17 would pay so little and the cost of obtaining some kind of, you know, reasonable housing would be way out of reach.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kids are not doing that anymore.
0: You know, I'll I'll tell you a quick funny story. This is a story that one of my uh, friends always tells Uh, her father was a very tough guy, really tough guy, Uh, you know, an air force pilot, world war two. And uh, she had an encounter with the police. And the police said, all right. And she was very young. And they, they said, all right, we're taking you home. She goes, no, we're not. We're going to jail. Jail is better. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and she said, believe me, jail is much better. <laughs> wow. So speaking of which, how do you deal with criminal stuff? Because that's what I wanted to transition to in the very last couple of minutes of this. Um, there are children who sometimes get caught up with the law. Sometimes parents get caught up in the law. Um, how you know, and and I know everybody lawyers up, and I'm a lawyer, but but to me, there's so many psychological dimensions of legal problems, and more importantly, uh, criminal issues. Um, you know, I have cases where, unfortunately, children have stole the identity of their parents and then mm-hmm. charged up all kinds of money, and then the parent is now facing legal issues. And I've had one situation where it was really extreme, and things like that. How do how do how do you cope with that on a psychological level? Forget the law and the excuses and, you know, this and that. That's what the lawyers do. But I always see that that the big void in the law in situations like that is, how do you deal with the underlying psychological issue that brought us here to the first place?
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's a tough one. Um, you know, a lot of times I'm... Mm,
0: you know, I mean, I—it's funny because I know that every situation is different. Yeah. But but sometimes uh, underlying there are addiction issues, uh, you know, uh, ir- irresponsibility, um, attention issues, um, mm-hmm. emotional uh, problems, trauma. You know, post-traumatic stress issues. I mean,
1: right. I, guess- I mean, rarely, rarely would criminal activity come out of nowhere. Right. Um, and if it did. I would look more at, like, the uh, the social parameters of that, you know, to say that this is a kid who would never have done that. Who is, who is he or she hanging out with what's changed recently? Um, you know, you want to look at, really, the context. So, you know, things like, sub you know, unfortunately, criminal activity that can go hand-in-hand with substance abuse. Um,
0: gang activity.
1: Gang activity. Um, you know, we have... You know, sometimes kids who are not stable, uh, with their emotional or their mental health, maybe they're not taking their medication as they're supposed to. And as you're dealing with kids who are a little bit older, and again, you try to give them some independence or some, um, you know, freedom, some children can't handle that. Uh, and that would be, you know, a perfect example of kids who then are getting into trouble. But in terms of a treatment issue, you know, you would wanna, you would wanna try to explore, you know, what maybe what's not stable in their life. So maybe it's that they need to be on medication or maybe it's their social group or maybe something's going on that we're not aware of. You know, maybe, maybe there's some sort of um, abuse or there's a relationship issue that, you know, then they're acting out in other ways. You know, again, we know kids seek attention. So um, it would really be trying to take a different, you know, the legal separate from the legal punishment or whatever, really trying to look at the child and say, well, what's going on?
0: So in, our, in my last question, and you've been phenomenal and helpful, and I'm sure that this audio will go to lots of places. When when people see some kind of semblance of a problem beginning, how do they find you? How did they get to you? How do they suggest going to someone like you or your, your organization to to start the path of healing and growth.
1: Um, well, we, um, you know, a lot of times families come to us by referral of schools. You know, we're very uh, well known in the academic community. We, you know, if parents are interested, you know, they can check out our website Uh They can call any of our sites. We are always happy to give information. We, um, you know, we're we're willing to work with you. You know, our whether it be short term work to you know help families and teach them skills, whether it would be group work we have um, wonderful groups, especially you know for the adolescents that group is a great modality where they can be with other kids their age and really you know know that they're not alone we've got substance abuse programs um, we you know we're we're here to help you with anything that we can and um, you know it's um
0: and, and you'll continue to be there.
1: Oh yes, yes, we will. We will continue to be here. Where um, you know, for better or worse, you know, there are always people that are going to need our help. And you know, we help diagnostically. We work with families on prevention. We do trainings within the community. Uh, we're involved in research and advocacy projects. We're involved in uh, several school programs throughout Nassau County uh, through Nassau BOCES. So we really are everywhere. Um, and, you know, we have such wonderful services. And even if you just had questions about if there was something going on with your child, we're always happy to uh, take the call and, and help you out and steer you in the right direction.
0: All righty. Can't thank you enough. You've been generous with your time, uh, full of wisdom and knowledge, and I hope that uh, we get to see you and be with you again on the radio.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right. So, again, uh, that's Vanessa McMullen, NorthShoreChildGuidance.org. This is Richard Solomon. We'll see you in a week we